Greetings, listeners. You have found hope. This is the Bridge to Hope podcast, Finding Hope. I'm Alyssa, and I'm here with Coltra as usual. Today, we are going to talk about human trafficking. This is one of the most misunderstood components of our work. A lot of people out there have a pretty specific idea of what human trafficking is, whether they think of the movie Taken or the guy in the creepy white van. So it's not that these things don't happen or outside the realm of possibility of happening, but the experiences of human trafficking survivors we see are much different. As you listen to this, we really encourage you to stop and take a minute to breathe or to stop the podcast altogether and do some self-care. We recognize that this is a sensitive topic like most of our other topics. So do what you need to take care of yourself. Today we have Miss Jennifer Lyons joining us. She is our shelter coordinator here at the Bridge to Hope. And she has worked with many different survivors of human trafficking. Uh, So she really understands it and really has seen firsthand what it looks like. And with that, Jennifer, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Jennifer. And I'm the shelter coordinator at The Bridge. As far as working with survivors of human trafficking, I also myself am a survivor of trafficking. So I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of what that looked like for me and kind of break those misconceptions. So let's just start with the definition of human trafficking. So most of this information comes from the Center for Prevention of Abuses Emerging from the Shadows Human Trafficking Toolkit. So when we talk about domestic violence, we talk a lot about power and control. This is also true for human trafficking. The most basic and straightforward way to define human trafficking is when individuals are compelled by force, fraud, and or coercion to provide labor and or sex. This definition was adapted from the definition created by the Polaris Project that defined human trafficking as the business of stealing freedom for profit. In some cases, traffickers trick, defraud, or physically force victims into providing commercial sex. In others, victims are lied to, assaulted, threatened, or manipulated into working under inhumane, illegal, or otherwise unacceptable conditions. It is a multi-billion dollar criminal industry that denies freedom to 24.9 million people around the world. We do want to highlight here that there are two main kinds of trafficking. There's labor and sex that they can happen simultaneously or completely independent of each other. One of the elements that unfortunately is very common in trafficking is that traffickers seek out and identify individuals who are vulnerable in some way. They may be homeless and exchange sex for food or shelter. They may have low self-confidence or don't get affection often and are lured in by attention and pampering. They may be neglected by family members, so the trafficker may use that as a way to manipulate someone into a relationship that quickly turns into a trafficking situation. A lot of time, victims of trafficking may feel that it is a genuine reciprocated relationship or at least starts that way before it turns into something more sinister. So now that we've kind of laid the groundwork of what constitutes as human trafficking, we want to talk about 
some of the different forms of what it is and what a lot of perceptions may be compared to what human trafficking actually looks like. So human trafficking actually happens a lot on dating apps, specifically Tinder, Bumble, Grindr, MeetMe.com. Um, anything that has a location point can be something that traffickers can use to traffic their victims and target their victims. Um, and those apps specifically have some type of distance identifier or location identifier on them that can be used to track people. Um, and a study from 2015 to 2018, out of 969 potential victims, um, 147 of them were recruited off of dating sites. 502 of them were recruited off of a platform such as a chat site or Craigslist. So that's that's way over half of trafficking victims. Uh, so there's like you can see that there's a strong correlation as far as apps that are commonly used and being trafficked. One of the things that traffickers look for on those apps is somebody who is vulnerable in their posts, specifically things like nobody understands me, I'm so lonely, and how do I look, you know, how do I look, uh, things like that. So if you're listening and you hear that maybe you say some of those things on your socials, you know, I'm not trying to target you or anything, um, but those are some things that can leave you very vulnerable to somebody's manipulation and to somebody's um, predatory behaviors. Uh, large crowd events can also draw traffickers. Anytime that there's a big event in town, like a sporting event, uh, Super Bowl rodeos, concerts, motorcycle events, anything where there's an increased tourist event or just increased amount of people in a certain area, that also leads to a lot of trafficking. It can mean that there's people who are moving about and don't necessarily belong there and a lot less people keeping tabs on who should be there and who shouldn't be there. And, you know, it's easier for people to go missing when they're not at home uh, doing their regular thing. Another big common issue that can occur with trafficking is at different bars and clubs. Again, it's that crowd thing where traffickers can kind of blend in with the crowd. And honestly, traffickers might look really normal and you wouldn't know that they're traffickers just upon looking at them. And so they can use those large crowds to, you know, slip something into somebody's drink, to casually have a conversation and pull somebody to the side. And then that side becomes a little out of the side of the bar and then that person's gone. But really... Another really, really big issue that happens a lot in all three of these different forms is um, a trafficker using a female, whether that female is also a trafficking victim or a trafficker themselves or both. Um, they may use another female to recruit others. And that's kind of works in the way where hey, I'm already doing this and I'm getting X, Y, and Z. I'm getting all this money. Uh, they're paying for my bills and, you know, they're buying me clothes and whatever. And so, hey, you're my friend. Why don't you do it too? And so that's kind of how those types of things work or just creating that false sense of security with a trafficker and a potential victim. A lot of times there will be pimp-controlled prostitution, uh, commercial front brothels, or escort services. And so all of those in, have 
kind of that sinister sex trafficking connotation as far as women doing sex work, not for themselves or not for their own autonomy or empowerment, but they're reporting back to somebody who controls their sex work um, and controls which jobs they see, how much they get paid and things like that. And that's really not what sex work should be about or anything like that. And, you know, sex work is its own thing and, you know, people can make money whatever way that they need to, but when they're also being controlled by somebody else, like that's, that's where the sex trafficking comes in play. Grooming is also another huge problem with human trafficking. It may start as a friendly relationship where the trafficker is buying the victim all these different favors, pampering them, treating them to new clothes. You want to go get your hair done? Let's go get your nails done. Or, and it may not even be that extravagant. It might just be giving attention to somebody who doesn't normally get attention, starting this bond or this relationship. Um, And that bond relationship might seem normal and okay for a while. And again, kind of will slowly escalate into something that's not okay and is can be really inappropriate. So another thing that we can look at to kind of describe the elements of human trafficking is the action means purpose model, which we got from humantraffickinghotline.org. So severe forms of trafficking and persons involve three elements. So the first one is action, and that could be recruiting, harboring, transporting, providing, or obtaining an individual Additional actions that constitute sex trafficking, but not labor trafficking, include patronizing, soliciting, and advertising an individual. The second part is through means of force, fraud, or coercion. Example of force could be physical abuse or assault, sexual abuse or assault, or confinement. Um, Examples of fraud would be false promises of working living conditions, so saying that you're going to live in this fancy place or that you're going to be paid such and such, but in the end that's not true. So withholding wages or contract fraud. Coercion may include threats of harm to self or others, debt bondage or psychological manipulation or document confiscation. So examples of this is if you had, you know, your birth certificate or ID, social security card, the trafficker ended up taking that from you to prevent you from, you know, ultimately leaving and being able to help yourself. Um, And then the last element would be purpose. So for a specific purpose, either of compelled labor or services or commercial sex acts. Yeah. And I think that we've seen more than a few times in shelter, somebody coming to us from a trafficking situation that has literally no documentation. They have to start over then. And it it takes a while. These are not you can't just go in and get your social security card in an afternoon. Like that's a month-long process. And also with that, it's hard to get one thing with the out- without the other. So, for example, trying to get your social security card, usually they need your ID and birth certificate. But if you don't have either of those, you know, how are you supposed to get that? And then going to get your ID, you need, you know, just goes on and on. So it's kind of just like a revolving circle. Um, and it's really frustrating or victims and survivors, um, and also people trying to help them too. It's just the process takes so long. The Emerging from Shadows Toolkit states, human trafficking is the second largest crime industry in the world behind illegal drug trade. 
human trafficking generates $150 billion a year. The highest number of sex trafficking survivors reported that the first instance that they were exploited in the sex trafficking began at the age of 15 and 17. So like we said up top, human trafficking is really misunderstood. There's a lot of myths around it. Um, And so we want to crack down on some of those myths and give you a bit of a better grasp of what we actually mean with human trafficking. Alyssa, do you want to start us off with our first myth? I sure can. So our first myth is human trafficking is always a violent crime or kidnapping. And so the reality of it is that human trafficking is often a result of grooming, manipulation, defrauding, or threats. Um, And that's all to exploit for either sex and or labor. And for example, so in my situation, I wasn't like tied to a bed or like grabbed off of the corner of the street like you would see like in the movie Taken or anything like that. I had met my trafficker and his acquaintances, I guess, at a local college bar. And while I was there, uh, one of the girls actually had recruited me for modeling Um, which was completely different. So I obviously thought, oh, this is modeling, you know, and nobody physically forced me into anything. Later down the line, I mean, things got violent, but it doesn't always start that way and doesn't necessarily mean it continues or is that way the entire time. Thanks for sharing that, Jennifer. Our next myth is all human trafficking involves commercial sex. All commercial sex is human trafficking. And so that's not true. While sex trafficking is more prevalent in the United States, globally there are more situations of labor trafficking. All commercial sex is involving minors is legally considered human trafficking. Um, in most states, in most cases, minors can't consent to sex, so that's automatically a crime. Uh, commercial sex involving an adult who has been coerced, forced, or is a victim of fraud would still be considered human trafficking. And then with that too, so human trafficking, again, can be sex trafficking or labor. So we've seen instances even here with labor trafficking. Sometimes someone moves from a different state or a different country, promised a certain job with certain benefits. They ended up getting here. It's completely different. Their wages are being withheld. And it has nothing to do, you know, that could be nothing to do with sex but that is labor trafficking. And once they're here, they're usually stuck because they really don't have any other options or any supports or family in the area. So not everything includes sex. Our next myth states, only women and girls are targets for human trafficking. And this again is not true. Studies estimate that roughly half of trafficking victims are male. Advocates believe that that number may actually be higher because of LGBTQ plus boys and young men are particularly vulnerable and wouldn't want to report this. We can kind of see how this may be true when we really look at human trafficking in that bigger sense. Sex trafficking, yeah, sure, that might be more female, but as far as labor, when you include labor, that would make it pretty evenly male and female. Our next myth states, human trafficking is moving or transporting a person across the state lines. And so human smuggling involves illegal border crossing. Human trafficking can take place in the target's home, in the target's hometown, or 
even in their own home. I think we worked with a few different clients who are actually trafficked by their parents and are coerced into trading sex um, to live places. And I think that happens a lot, honestly. Yeah, this can even be almost like, you know, human trafficking is in our backyard. You really don't have to go far. I'm sure you see strip clubs everywhere. You don't have to cross borders normally to find one. And there is a lot of trafficking that's usually happening in there. And same thing with, like, labor trafficking. It could be in any type of business, whether it's any type of beauty, business, farming, stores, restaurants, anything like that. Right. And, like, like you mentioned strip clubs. And, like, we don't want to, again, we don't want to shame or say that all sex work is bad work and is all sex work is sex trafficking. But there can be a really strong correlation with that and an overlap. Depending on where you work, they might be really good about protecting you against those type of predatory um, situations. And other businesses that do sex work may actually be pimping you into sex work or may facilitate that, that shift. And we're not trying to scare you, just make you aware so you can be cautious. Right, very much the same way that you know, sexual assault, domestic violence is everywhere. Human trafficking is everywhere. Our next myth is human trafficking victims are physically unable to leave. They are locked in or held against their will. So this is true in some situations, but more often victims do not have what they need to leave. Uh, they might not have a safe place to go. They might not have food, transportation, clothing. Um, like we talked about earlier, they may not have their birth certificate, social security card, or any of those things that they went there with in the first place. And their fear of what of leaving might be the biggest threat. The fear of what could happen to others, other loved ones, might be a big threat against them leaving. They may even be manipulated to the point of not being able to identify what is happening to them is wrong and is human trafficking. Definitely, Kultra. Um, this is kind of like we talked about in the beginning of the myths, too. Like, people aren't just, you know, not necessarily chained into a room. I mean, this definitely does happen and can happen, but a lot, a lot of times by fraud or coercion to make them stay. In my situation, you know, people would always ask, like, why didn't you leave sooner? Why didn't you just, yeah, why didn't you just leave? And with mine, I was threatened many times because my trafficker had gotten information about my family. Um, they knew exactly where they lived and threatened to harm them. And I really didn't want anything to happen to anyone else because of the situation I was in. Um, and when I finally left, I had woken up one morning and my purse was missing. So on a normal day, it would have been easy just to wake up, grab my purse and my keys, head out to my car and go. But at this time, um, I mean, I was already brainwashed to the point where I thought they had trackers on my car, which could have been very easy for this person to do. And I woke up, my purse was gone. So there was my keys. My phone was also in my purse. My birth certificate, my social security card was in my purse because we had just come back from a trip where I needed that, uh, where I needed those. So I had nowhere to go. My car wasn't with me at this time either. I didn't have my keys anyways. So when I left, I was literally running down the streets at this time, but that's a really scary thought, especially when, if you have others involved, like kids or pets or anything, it was luckily just me, but 
it's scary with all the threats, especially if you've seen things happen before. You just really don't want to walk into that or have that happen to you or anyone else. Thanks for sharing that, Jennifer. So our next myth is if the traffic person consented to the initial situation, then they already knew what they were getting into. Um, So this is victim blaming. Initial consent to commercial or sex labor prior acts uh, prior to any force, coercion, fraud is not relevant. Uh, Like we talked in other episodes, consent is continuous, ongoing, and specific to that interaction. Just because you accept payment does not mean that you gave consent for that act. Well, for this one, I guess going into it, I obviously got gave, was given false hope, I guess. I mean, it was down to the point where I thought I was going to be doing like managing myself. Um, I mean, there is even W-2s, like this person was legit. Um, so I thought I knew something, but unfortunately didn't. And then once getting into it a little bit more, like dancing, stripping um, is what my led to. Just knowing that it was there, I didn't think that I was going to be in that position. But, you know, I I don't know, I guess, how to explain that. I just, it was like I knew, but I, I didn't know, I guess. And again, being coerced into something that you're not really sure what's happening. Right. And I think that's kind of the reality of the situation where it's like, you might know better, but also like, it's not your fault. You know, these are people who make a living off of tricking, fooling, duping, manipulating people into things they don't want to do. Yeah, you get told one thing and then you end up doing way more than just that. Right. Our next myth states, most trafficked persons do not know the people who targeted them for trafficking. So I think this comes from the stranger danger approach, creepy guy in a white van. But this, again, is not true. Most survivors of trafficking report that they were trafficked by somebody that they knew. And beyond just knowing them, their traffickers were significant others, spouses, relatives, and even parents. So this happens often with people that are coming to to us for help. A lot of times it will start as a normal relationship, like you're dating, and then it turns into trafficking. This can also be done, you know, like by parents and stuff. I know when in my situation, um, when I was trying to, rec- I guess, quote unquote, recruit others, I was actually going to my friends and I guess trying to recruit them as awful as that sounds, but I want, you know, they trust you more, I think. And it was just easier to walk up to somebody that you know and kind of be like, hey, come do this with me. It's pretty cool. Rather than some random person on the street. Our second to last myth states sex trafficking survivors are all the same. Again, not true. Uh, Sex trafficking can happen to anybody um, in any community. Uh, We are talking, we are saying that sex trafficking transcends and human trafficking transcends any socioeconomic class, race, gender, or immigration status. But on, on the other hand, some individuals do face a higher risk of being targeted by traffickers. If somebody has run away, um, homelessness, um, victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, social discrimination, sex traffickers will exploit these vulnerabilities and manipulate their victims 
to make them feel guilty for anything that might happen to them. So when I was, I guess, started in my trafficking situation, this is why, you know, saying all the same. So I was going to school, college for criminal justice. Um, I mean, I grew up in a what I would think was a normal household, you know, went to school, lived in the suburbs my whole life, um, never really got in trouble. So it was just, I guess to, for people, it was kind of like, it was weird. Like, how did this happen to you? But again, my trafficker knew my vulnerabilities. And at this point, I was really looking for money because I was working two jobs and going to school full time, which was really, it was hard. And, um, you know, I was like, hey, an easy way to make money. Cool. And it's legal. And at that point, because I thought what I was doing, you know, was legal and I didn't even know what trafficking was. But another case, one of the girls that I worked with, she had gotten kicked out of her house and it was winter. It's cold up here in Wisconsin. And in some some areas, you have to be a certain age to get into places. Well, at this time, she was standing outside freezing and the trafficker came up asking, you know, what she was doing. She just said, I can't get in because I'm not 18. The person said, you know, I'll be your parent or whatever. And she was able to get into a warm area. And that's how her started, unfortunately. And I mean, it can be as simple as that. Like, just needing to be warm, needing somewhere to sleep, needing food, like... It does not have to be anything scandalous or inappropriate from the start. And I think that's kind of why sex trafficking and human trafficking is so, so scary. And the last myth we have is sex trafficking survivors cannot be charged with prostitution. So sex trafficking survivors are actually often charged with prostitution and incarcerated for it. Wisconsin currently does not have a safe arbor law. But that would mean that even a child under the age of 18 can be charged with prostitution, which which is really scary um, and happens a lot. Because on top of that, legally in Wisconsin, children under the age of 18 cannot legally consent to sex. So if they cannot legally consent to sex, how can they be charged with prostitution? Um, and I think that we can recognize that this is a huge issue and a huge gap in the criminal justice system that really leads to criminalization of, of victims and further victimization by the system. I guess one more thing that we can talk about with myths um, is the idea that it doesn't happen here. I know a lot of people want to believe that just because they don't see it, you know, human trafficking doesn't happen here. I was talking about human trafficking with my parents over in the Twin Cities. And they're like, what? Small town Menominee, Wisconsin? Like, why? How are you getting all these people seeking services in small town Wisconsin? So, you know, they're being trafficked. And I was like, let me tell you, Dad, there's this thing called 94. It is a highway corridor from Chicago to the Twin Cities. Yeah, so growing, I mean, like I said, when I grew up, so I grew up in Eau Claire, literally almost my whole life, it was like, yeah, it doesn't happen here again. It happens in big cities like Milwaukee, Chicago, whatever. Yeah. And I think a big issue, I think, with that almost um, and why it was easier f to even, I guess, like choose me or whatever, was because I really wasn't taught about trafficking. I had no idea what it was because you, again, didn't really hear about it in these smaller communities. Um, and I think that would be one thing that would be really important, you know, moving forward is education 
because I think if I would have known a little bit more, I maybe would have been able to notice certain things. But again, when people are just turning a blind eye and saying it doesn't happen here, it doesn't happen here, then nobody else is getting educated either. We just went through a lot of the myths. And so we also kind of want to go through different red flags about what you might be able to identify if you see a trafficking situation or you think that you might see a trafficking situation. We also want to put a lining on this or qualify this that, you know, somebody could fit all these boxes and may not be in a trafficking situation. We also want to caution people that approaching a trafficker and having some type of confrontation with a trafficking situation is very risky and is very dangerous and could lead to you becoming trafficked or worse. So some red flags. The trafficker might be significantly older than the victim. There may be signs of physical abuse. The victim survivor might have unexplainable amounts of cash, lots of expensive items, new clothing, um, things that you just generally wouldn't expect them to be able to afford on their own. They may have some depression symptoms like withdrawing or lack of interest from previous activities. Trafficking survivors and victims frequently run away. They may be secretive about where they're going or who they're going with. Victims could be isolated from their regular friends and stop hanging out with who they normally would. And just general changes in behavior, temperament, and personality. Again, some of these are really general and really don't are not foolproof in saying that somebody's a victim or not, but all these together could could definitely indicate that somebody is being trafficked. People may be vulnerable to trafficking if they have an unstable living situation, if they have previously experienced other forms of violence, such as sexual abuse or domestic violence, if they have ran away or involved in the juvenile justice or child welfare system, if they are undocumented immigrants, if they face poverty or economic needs, if they have a caregiver or family member who has a substance use issue, also if they are addicted to drugs or alcohol. And again, uh, very much like the red flags, if all of these matches you, that does not mean that you will become trafficked, but it does show an increased risk. Like when I worked at a group home, we really focused a lot about what different risk factors might lead to trafficking because we were working with teenagers who really didn't have a lot of support and could be especially vulnerable to being trafficked. So who are these traffickers? You know, if you just were to to Google traffickers, there's not going to be one thing that just pulls up, I guess. So there's no evidence that a trafficker is more likely to be of a particular race, nationality, gender, sexual orientation. They could be family members, romantic partners, acquaintances, or strangers. And then some different ways that traffickers lure people in. A lot of times stories become weapons in the hands of human traffickers. So, for example, tales of a romantic love, everlasting, or about good jobs and fair wages just over the horizon. Sometimes the stories themselves raise red flags. Other times, potential traffickers may raise red flags during recruitment. So a few different situations that we've looked at that you know, turn into trafficking or whatnot is a would-be employer refuses to give workers a signed contract or ask them to sign a contract in a language that they can't read. And this can be very common in labor trafficking. 
especially if someone's coming from a different country and English is not their first language. Being able to read a contract is pretty important. So if this is not in like your main language and you end up signing something, you really don't know what you're signing. So another one, a would-be employer collects fees from a potential worker for the opportunity to work in a particular job. So this makes me think of pyramid schemes where you might have to buy the product or buy so much of it up front or pay for some type of training up front. And then when it's time to make your big payday, there is no payday. You just have to keep putting more money in to get this payout that never comes. Again, pyramid schemes are a little different than labor trafficking, but can kind of have some of those same red flags. So another example, a friend, a family member, coworker, or student is newly showered with gifts or money or otherwise becomes involved in an overwhelming, fast-moving romantic relationship. So this could be the person trying to coerce them and use fraud, I guess. You know, thinking that this person is in love with you or that they have all this stuff for you, but then will require it back or take it back, I guess, for their benefit. And like a whirlwind romance could be like a really good example as far as getting caught up in the moment and not being able to stop it and then being stuck in it once you finally have that space and time to breathe. Yeah, definitely. Another example, a friend, family member, or student is a frequent runaway and maybe staying with someone who is not their parent or guardian. So again, just staying with a friend is a big one. Which, I mean may not be bad on the surface, but if they have to exchange either sex or, you know, something beyond what would be a reasonable ask to stay, you know, you shouldn't have to sleep with your friend to crash on their couch or something like that. Another example is a family member, friend, coworker, or student is developing a relationship that seems too close with someone they know solely on social media. And I know this is a big trend. Social media is such a huge thing right now, especially with the pandemic. It's so much easier just to talk to people online. But, you know, when this becomes more of a thing that's isolating them, I think, is something that would be worrisome, I think. And you never really know when you're talking to somebody online their age. So it's really important to just be careful what you say online. Of course, if you're talking to somebody that's your close friend and you see them in real life, it's one thing. But if you're talking to a brand new person, maybe when you're gaming, you never know what their age is, what their intentions are. So just be careful at all times. Another example, a family member, friend, student lives with a parent or guardian and shows sign of abuse. Um, This could be physical abuse, psychological abuse, any form of abuse. Obviously, physical abuse is going to be easier to see, but that doesn't necessarily happen in every situation. Another one, a family member, friend, or coworkers offered a job opportunity that seems too good to be true. And unfortunately, we know this for many things. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. So if they bring this, I mean, like, for example, if they bring something up to you, like, oh, I got offered this job to do this, you know, maybe just talking to them more and kind of questioning them to see what else they know about it. And if they really don't have the answers, you know, maybe mention something to them like this. This seems not okay. doesn't seem right. Stuff like that. You get paid to travel. It'll be lots of fun. You make lots of money. Just 
different things like that. Make sure to watch and look at more details of the job before you commit. And then a family member, friend, or coworker is recruited for an opportunity that requires them to move far away, but the recruiter or prospective employer avoids answering their questions or is reluctant to provide detailed information about the job. So again, I feel like this is almost the too good to be true thing again. Like, oh, we'll have you out here and doing all the stuff. But if they just kind of stop replying and stop answering and not, you know, giving you details, that's a red flag for sure. Right. If like if a legitimate real employer is saying that you need to go here to do a job, they're going to give you information. It's not going to be just kind of a blind trust thing. Like that's that's probably not a legitimate situation if that's what you're going into. Recognizing trafficking. So somebody might be experiencing labor trafficking or exploitation if they are feeling pressured by their employer to stay in a job uh, when they want to leave, if they owe money to an employer or recruiter or are not being paid what they are promised, if they don't have control of their passport or other identifying documents, if they are living and working in isolated conditions, largely cut off from interactions with others and other support systems. It might be labor trafficking if they appear to be monitored by another person when talking or interacting with others, or if they are being threatened by their boss with deportation or any other type of harm or abuse. Uh, it could also be labor trafficking if they have to work in dangerous conditions without safety gear, training, breaks, or other protection, or if the living conditions are dangerous, overcrowded, inhumane, or anything like that. A lot of those things would definitely fall, fall under the labor trafficking category. And so here's a few different ways that you might be able to recognize sex trafficking as well. Somebody may want to stop participating in commercial sex, but are, are scared to leave or unable to leave the situation that they're in. Uh, they may disclose that they are reluctant to gauge in commercial sex, but somebody pressure them into doing it. Sex trafficking can be occurring when somebody lives where they work or are transported to work by guards, either between home or their workplace. Children who live with or are dependent on a family member with a substance abuse problem or, his, or who is abusive. It could be sex trafficking if somebody has a pimp or a manager. Working in the industry where it may be common to be pressured to perform certain sex acts, either for money in a strip club or an illicit cantina, go-go bar, or any type of illicit massage business or any type of business that is maybe posing as a different type of business. Sex trafficking might be happening if there is a controlling parent, guardian, or romantic partner who will not allow them to meet or speak with anybody um, without being monitored. And they may monitor movements, spending, communications, or anything else like that. Tattoos and branding also happen pretty regularly with human trafficking, especially sex trafficking. That can be a way for pimps to basically tag who they are trafficking. And it might have to do with how much certain acts are worth or how much that person is deemed to be worth in the sex trafficking industry. Or it could also be a symbol that it belongs to that certain pimp. There's a few different ways that tattoos and branding might be used by traffickers. About prevention. We should learn about it, talk about it, and call it out if we safely can. 
So some specific strategies to lure someone into trafficking, those are important to always know. And then if you have kids, keep an eye on their social media and other online activity. Get familiar with community resources like the Bridge to Hope. Human trafficking thrives when it's not talked about or addressed, which is far too often and exactly what traffickers need to keep trafficking and making profits of vulnerable people. Communities can help to reduce sex trafficking in their communities by not buying sex and not participating in the commercial sex industry. Community members can use online tools such as Slavery Footprint to see how human trafficking exists in the services and products they consume. Buy fair trade and survivor-made products and hold their favorite brands accountable for fair labor practices. Alongside the efforts of service providers, criminal prosecutors, and law enforcement, these community efforts can help to reduce the demand for sex and labor trafficking. So this brings us to the end of our discussion on human trafficking. Definitely take some time for yourself and you know, sit with some of those emotions, do some self-care, uh, do what you need to kind of jump back from this. One of the things that we do want to highlight at the end of this episode is that Wear Blue Day is on January 11th, and that is the day that we recognize that human trafficking exists and that we need to do as much as we can to help combat um, human trafficking and help survivors. So as we all kind of hear a lot of hard stories between the three of us, I want to ask you both, what do you do with self-care? I know I usually try to take more naps and make sure to get a full night's rest of sleep so I can wake up the next day ready to go. But what do you, Jennifer, and what do you, Culture, do for self-care? I think for self-care, I, I've actually been getting back into reading. I feel like I haven't read a chapter book for a long time, and recently I've been doing that again. And it just, uh, it feels really nice to immerse yourself in a story that isn't so heavy. <laughs> Yeah, hey, that's that's a good idea. Cause I think I started doing that too, probably within the last couple of years. I picked up books again. It's kind of nice to read something that is possibly not a true story, which is kind of <laughs> nice. And then I guess for myself, I really enjoy crafts. So I like to do crafts, crafting, or just spending time with my kids. We hope you have gleamed your own little bit of hope today from our discussion. Thanks for stopping by. Take care. <laughs>